Verily I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick! Bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you were always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. My name is Kevin. I have the uh, joy of being one of the pastors here at Cornerstone, and it's my responsibility this morning to, uh, to teach God's word to us. We believe the scripture is God's message, a revelation of his heart towards us, and uh, that's my task is to uh, open it up. Now, before I do that, I'm going to take a risk, and I'm going to share an announcement that may uh, tempt you to forget everything else I say this morning. It's an announcement on behalf of Cornerstone's elders. And pastors, and uh, it's a significant one, so buckle up. <clears throat> so the announcement is this: on February 27th, so about six weeks ago, some leaders from Orchard Park Bible Church met with some leaders of Cornerstone to request that talks between our leadership groups re-engage regarding a potential merger of our congregations. Since that date, various subsets of our leadership groups have met at various times throughout March and early April 
and those meetings focused on Cornerstone really sharing our vision, our mission, and learning the respective strengths and challenges of our congregations. Coming out of that, those meetings, Cornerstone's elders and pastors have communicated to Orchard Park's leadership that the only model of merger that we could um, consider at this time is one where Cornerstone would adopt Orchard Park. So under this model, the members of Orchard Park will have the opportunity to join the mission and the ministry of Cornerstone and that Orchard Park would cease to exist. This is being communicated to the members of Orchard Park today and they're having a membership meeting where they will determine whether this is an option that they want to explore further. And we learned last evening that it, this will be unanimously recommended to them by their leadership. So it's big, right? <laughs> where am I in my announcement here? <laughs> Um, so they're not deciding if they're doing that today. I just want to be clear on that. They're deciding if they want to explore that further today. So we would call on all of us to give ourselves to earnest prayer and fasting, seeking the heart and the mind of our Heavenly Father on this matter. And I'd maybe do a underline on the word fasting. Maybe you've never fasted in, in prayer over an issue before. But in Scripture... It is a common practice that as a group of people like Cornerstone would seek God's wisdom and direction on a matter that they would fast and pray. We'll have the opportunity for further dialogue regarding this surprising development at our AGM, which is scheduled conveniently for next Sunday evening at 7 p.m. And if you have any questions or comments regarding this, we would be happy as pastors and elders to engage you in this. Um, we have, don't have the details worked out. I'll be upfront about that. Um, but, uh, and we would have loved, I'd love to say too, that we would have loved to have shared this earlier uh, with us all. Uh, but as I, I trust you can understand, it's a sensitive issue, particularly for our brothers and sisters at Orchard Park. For this announcement to be made and in a public way um, puts them a bit behind the eight ball, as I, I hope you can imagine, and um, puts them in a very uh, a vulnerable place. And so we've wanted to and we've sought to respect uh, their wishes on that and allowed them to set that timeline of public communication. So I hope you can understand that. Um, we weren't seeking to keep this secret. I'd also say that this was not the impetus or there wasn't a subtext um, between our good this and our Good Friday service, which we did jointly together. Um, the subtext developed, uh, but we had we had joined, uh, we had agreed to do this joint service back in November when there was none of this talk going on. And um, so it, when they approached us in February, at the end of February 27th, um, it put a new, <laughs> a new, spin on our uh, on our gathering last uh, on Good Friday. So I, I trust you'll you'll pray with us about this. Um, some may ask, you know, what what about the vision of Cornerstone and, and our open doors campaign? 
And I'd say this, that, that our vision of what kind of a church we're called to be hasn't changed. Hasn't changed at all. The, the vision of being uh, an increasingly hospitable community that will seek to make Jesus, the real Jesus, known here in Niagara, that hasn't changed. Um, frankly, though, it could, could change our strategy, <laughs> exactly, of how that, those steps get played out. And um, we'll, we'll, we'll talk more about that in, uh, in the future, in the coming days. But I'd say to us as a, as a body, as a congregation, we have a discernment piece as well. This, so this will be brought for discernment to both of our congregations. That whether, so, so this will be a decision that we together will say, we, we are deciding whether or not to go forward on this, just as their congregation will. We'll share more about the heart behind that all and, um, and, and why uh, your leaders have extended that invitation towards them next week. But um, maybe we'll have an interesting connection time in, in, in a few minutes as, uh, as we talk together. So we're going to come back to God's word now. I'm going to ask you to kind of take that little spicy meatball and just set that off to the side. And uh, let's, let's engage in the scripture together. This beautiful, this incredible passage from Luke chapter 15. Incredible passage of Jesus in his teaching. We're starting a, a message series, a sermon series this morning called The Meals of Jesus. Uh, one commentator has said that in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's coming from a meal. And we're going to see how, uh, in this series, this spring, we're going to see how the meals of Jesus were so much more than refueling with food, but really the meals of Jesus give form, they give expression to the community of Jesus. They give um, a, a, a picture of the kind of community that Jesus is building and calling us and inviting us to be a part of and gives shape to the mission that he invites us into. How would you complete the sentence? The Son of Man, which is a, um, a biblical uh, a picture or description of Jesus that he took on himself, referring to a passage in the prophecy of Daniel, of, of God who's come to, to, to live among us. The Son of Man came blank. How would, you, how would you complete that sentence? How do the scriptures complete that sentence? Can you think of one? Does anyone, there's a, a bit of a sword drill. Anyone know that? The Son of Man came seeking to save the lost. It's the most well-known. There's another one. There's two more, actually. Came to serve and not be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And there's one more. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Did you know that? Luke 7.34, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Jesus, in the context of that, in, in Luke chapter 7, John, uh, he's contrasting himself, in, in, and he's kind of speaking out to the religious leaders, the hypocrites of the day, um, and saying, 
you know, John the Baptist came and he was fasting and you said he's got a demon. Well, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking and now you say, ugh, he's a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. What way do you want it? You can't come fasting, you can't come eating and drinking. But Luke, the, uh, Dr. Luke is careful in his gospel account of Jesus to show that the Son of Man, that Jesus came eating and drinking. He came eating and drinking. Think about your dining room table this morning. Think about your dining room table. Think about the dining room table you grew up around as a child. It's where you have chats. It's where you share news. Tell stories. Where you poke fun at each other. It's a place where values are imbibed. It's a place where guests are welcomed. And many social commentators have said, you know, families and in our, even our society has fragmented so much because mealtimes have become all about just refueling. Quickly grab a bite because I'm, I'm such a busy, so let's sit in front of the TV or, and eat our meal. Let's grab something on the go. But every culture, every culture, a meal, a shared meal is a form of hospitality, of making space for people to be with us. Someone with whom we share food is likely our friend or well on the way to becoming our friend. Leviticus 19, in the Old Testament, Jesus, uh, the God says through uh, Moses, he says, when an alien or stranger lives with you in your land, do not mistreat him. The alien living with you must be treated as one of your native born. Love him as yourself. For you are aliens and strangers in Egypt. I'm the Lord your God. Jesus says, God says, teaches throughout the scripture, show hospitality. Show welcome and embrace. Make space for those who are not yet part of your community to become part of your community. In many ways, Jesus' mission strategy in this world, as he walked, was a meal that lingered on into the evening because it was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of welcome and embrace. But the religious leaders of the day mutter. Do you love the word mutter? It sounds like what it means, doesn't it? Mutter. They mutter. This guy receives, welcomes sinners, and even eats with them. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. Our first thought this morning, friends, is that Jesus eats with sinners. Jesus eats with sinners. Now, if he never ate with sinners, he'd have had all his meals alone. That's the truth, right? But the religious folk of the day are muttering to themselves, he eats sinners. He's eating with sinners. Tax collectors, even. Tax collectors were the, the wealthy sinners. They were the upper class. They were wealthy. Um, maybe if you grew up in church, you, you knew that publicans or tax collectors were, uh, you know, they were hated by the Jews because uh, they, 
they collected more tax than they should have. And so, you know, they should have taken, should have collected 20 bucks, but to line their pockets, they collected 30 bucks. And, and, and in, in cases, that's true. That's, that's what they did. But with the 20 bucks that they were supposed to collect, what that did was, was fund the army that was oppressing the, the land and funded the army that uh, may have killed your father, your mother, your brother or sister, your son or your daughter. They were despicably sinful and hated. They were the oppressors of the day. The upper class sinners. Then there was a whole other class that you see in verse 1. It's the tax collectors and, quote, sinners were all gathering around Jesus to hear him. There's a whole class of people just titled sinners. If the uh, tax collectors are the upper class sinners, the sinners are just the lower class sinners. These are the prostitutes, the slave traders, the ones who are just down and out. Maybe disabled because disability was seen as a curse by God. But we see in Luke 15 that both kinds of sinners are despised by the culture. Both kinds of sinners are despised by the religious elite. They were not allowed to testify in court. They were not allowed even near the temple. They were not even allowed to contribute financial offerings to the synagogue. How bad does things have to be when even the church won't take your money, right? But there's another class of sinners in this, in, in this, in this text. There's the upper class tax collectors, there's the lower class, just sinners. But there's religious sinners, and they're muttering. And they're dumbfounded that Jesus would include people in, in his community who they would want nothing to do with. And that's what religious sinners do. They're hypocritical and judgmental and proud. They're so aware of everyone else's sins, but not aware of their own. They're concerned with the outside of the cup, but ignore what's inside. But here's the beautiful truth, friends. In Luke's gospel, Jesus eats with all three kinds of sinners. He eats with them. He engages them. He welcomes them. He offers friendship to them. Kind of snuck in to that statement is this doctrine of sin, original sin, if you will. The biblical teaching that all of us are sinners. It's not popular in our day to say that we're sinners, that our hearts are at its at its core, at their core, our hearts are actually broken and sick, infected by the by sin, in rebellion against God, alienated from him. It's not a popular teaching. But Jesus says we're like sheep that constantly need to be rescued, powerless to find ourselves. But he pursues friendship with us. And that's our second thought, is in Luke 15, Jesus is teaching that he pursues friendship with us, and he's overjoyed when he finds us. He pursues friendship. 
with sinners of all kinds, and he's overjoyed when he finds it. Did you, did you notice as Megan was reading this text, uh, Jesus, he, he tells three parables, right? A, a parable of, of a lost coin, a parable of a lost sheep, and a parable of two lost sons. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and two lost sons. And God, in each of those parables, is the one who's on the, on the hunt for that which is lost. In each of the parables, God is pictured as the one who is seeking out and pursuing the thing that's lost, the one that's lost. And when he finds it, he's overjoyed. Right? The parable of the lost sheep, he says, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Parable of the lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Which is an interesting verse. Some of us take that to say the angels throw a party, right? The angels are happy. But no, no that's not what it says. In the, it says there's rejoicing in the presence of the angels. Who's in the presence of the angels? God. God's throwing the party. He's the one rejoicing. The parable of two lost sons. One, one, one lost son, one rejects God by, by out and out rejecting him. He's the, he's the lower class sinner. I wish you were dead, dad. I'm going my own way. The other lost son is the one who wasn't really interested in friendship with the father either. He was just interested in his father's things and slavishly worked away and he's, Jesus is giving a, the religious leaders a picture of themselves in this older brother, saying, you know, you, you think so highly of yourselves, but you actually aren't in friendship with God either. And Jesus says the father pursues each of them. He, the father runs out to the lost son who, who, who's returned, the prodigal son, right? He's run, he runs out to him and embraces him and throws the party and welcomes him in. And when the older brother is pouting outside and saying, you know, I've served you for so long and you've never even given me a goat, but you've killed the fattened calf for this guy. The father goes out to him too and welcomes him in and says, come to the party. Come to the party. The terrible truth is that older brother just never comes in, right? He wants to remain in his religiosity. But the joy of the father, when he finds friendship again, when relationship and friendship is restored, he throws a party that's heard miles away. You know you're really ripping it up, right? If your music and dancing is heard miles away. The father's overjoyed as he pursues friendship with sinners. But we're sinners. We constantly need rescue. We need thorough rescue. We're like a coin that's lost. How, how helpless is a coin that's lost? What can it do to get found, right? Unless the owner of that coin pursues that coin, it's not going to get found. The sheep are the same way. The sheep go astray and they have no way of finding their way back. Unless that good shepherd leaves the 99, goes, picks that sheep up on his shoulders and drags it back, carries it back 
to the flock. We need thorough rescue. We need constant rescue. What does it mean to be a Christian? Some, some would say, oh, it means trying to live the lifestyle of Jesus. Some try, try really hard to do all that Jesus tells us to do. No, he, he needs to thoroughly rescue us. That's what it means to be a Christian, that we've been thoroughly, totally rescued. That he brings us all the way home. He brings us all the way home. It's not popular to say that we're sinners who need rescue, that we're rebels who need forgiveness. It's not popular in our day. No, no doctrine, no teaching of Jesus has been more uh, pushed down because we want to believe there's good in us. We want to believe we're good and we're capable of ultimately being good. But there's so much empirical evidence to the contrary. Is there not? Read the news. In this age of where, you know, some of us have lived through two world wars and global terrorism and corruption at every level. We're sinners, but Jesus pursues friendship with sinners. He receives sinners. He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And he's overjoyed when he He's overjoyed. He's filled with great rejoicing when he finds you. And so, friends, in this series, what we want to explore is what is the community, what kind of community is formed by grace? What kind of community is formed by people who have been rescued by Jesus? What, what, what does that make us as a community? What is a community? Well, a community is a group of individuals who've been bonded together by some common experience. And the reality is, is that the more intense the experience, the stronger the bond. If you have a common experience that's very, very intense, the bond is very, very strong. If your common experience is that you live in the same, you know, you work at the same uh, a company, but one of you changes jobs, it's very likely that your friendship or is, you know, you never, you never split up and stop being friends, but you're just not in the same community anymore because the, the experience wasn't all that intense. I'm reading a, a book for pure enjoyment right now called The Boys in the Boat. It's the story of um, a, a, a rowing team uh, who one gold at the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. And it's, it's so interesting. And, and one, of the, one of the guys who was uh, interviewed and really told much of the story, he's in his 90s, and, and as he's talking to the author, he said, he said this, tell them about the boat. The boat. He didn't mean the racing shell. He meant the group of people that had this common bond who went into Nazi Germany and won gold. And it's so interesting, the, 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 the intensity of the experience that these boys had, you know, they, as they're even trying out, like they're in Washington State, rowing in November. Picture that. Like, like it's, it's raining every day. It's cold. The water's rough. And these guys, are they got to work together. And these crazy 
conditions, miserable conditions, and the bond that forms. It's the boat. Some of us have been immigrants or refugees, and you meet, you meet another immigrant or another refugee, maybe who's, you didn't know them in the homeland, but, but you both come out. What bond do you have, right? You've had a similar experience. There's a bond, knowing that you've been through an intense experience together. So what kind of community is formed by those who've experienced the grace of Jesus? What kind of community is formed by those who've experienced Jesus' great grace in our lives? Who've experienced what it means to come from death to life, to come from darkness into light? What is that experience? What is that bond that's formed? I, I did a, bit, a similar uh, activity with uh, the, our disciples making disciples group this morning, but um, there's four questions that uh, one of our friends, Jeff Vanderstelt, teaches to ask. As we come to a scripture, as we, as we think about uh, a life of faith, and he, he, these four questions should be asked in a particular order. And these, who is God? What has God done? And so in light of who God is and in light of who, what God has done, who are we? And then based out of all of that, how should we then live? Well, who is God? God is love. God is gracious and merciful. God is invitational. We see that in this passage, right? That he's pursuing relationship and he's pursuing friendship with sinners. He's welcoming them around a table and he's, he's enjoying a meal with upper-class sinners with lower-class sinners. He's inviting religious sinners, all of them around the table, which is a sign of friendship. Well, what has he done? He's, he's loved us when we were strangers. He's loved us when we were outsiders, even w- when we were enemies of his. He's loved us as his own children and brought us into his family. He's shown us great hospitality. He's shown us great love at great expense to himself. So then, based on this, that God is love and merciful and invitational, based on the the fact that he has loved us and invited us, that he's he's shown us hospitality, then who are we? We are lost people saved by sheer grace. We are infinitely loved and valued by God. We're adopted sons and daughters of God. So then how should we live? How should we live? What kind of community should we be of people who've been saved by sheer grace, who've been loved by our great God at great cost to himself, who've been adopted into the family of God, who've been loved even while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Even while we were in enmity with God, even when we were enemies with God, he loved us and sent his son for us. What kind of community does that make us? Two things makes us a community who cannot feel superior to those who are outside. If you are saved by sheer grace, sheer grace from first to last, how dare we feel superior to anyone? Grace, a thorough rescue, a thorough rescue. We should welcome others in. Imagine that lost coin, thinking about other coins that are still in the couch. <laughs> so much better than you. 
He found me. Hasn't, hasn't bothered to find you yet. How dare we feel superior to those who are outside? It's been by grace you have been saved, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. And so we should welcome others in without a shred of superiority. And second, there's a common bond. There's the common bond. We've passed from death to life. We're brothers and sisters. And so while we're incredibly invitational, we're also incredibly tight. <laughs> we have so much in common, even when we have nothing else in common. I've experienced that in Burundi recently as sharing meals with brothers mostly and some sisters who in many ways have nothing in common with you. You live in rural Burundi. You're black. I'm white. By the world's standards, you're poor. I'm rich. You've lived through wars and civil wars and genocides, and I haven't. But we talk about Jesus for 10 minutes, and we have a common bond. Common bond. We're brothers. So I'm asking for two commitments, Cornerstone. First commitment is that we would commit ourselves to building a community of beautiful, unified diversity. The meals of Jesus teach us that his community should be committed to building our community of unity. We have a common bond, but we're diverse. And so become friends with people from other generations. Become friends with people whose marital status is different than yours. Become friends with people whose socioeconomic status is different than yours, or race, or background. Unified diversity. Second commitment. Commit to building a community where we are all free to admit we're sinners. Not in theory, but that we're actually sinners. It's so easy to say, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm a sinner. But to say, no, I'm proud, and sometimes I'm, I think I'm better than you. I think I'm smarter than you, Lord. Where you can actually admit your brokenness. Do you know what kind of community that makes us? would make us into, where we're actually free to confess our sins to one another, as James says, that turns us into a healing community, where it's okay not to be okay, where we're compassionate to others who sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says every other community is based on performance and living up to a certain set of standards, and you're never allowed to admit failure, but the religion, but, but Jesus, religion says the same, you're never allowed to be a sinner, but Jesus is gentle and kind with sinners. 
And what we have in common is that we need the thorough rescue of God. What we have in common is that we need Jesus to save us. So of course we're sinners. And we'll never be a, a community that can make disciples, that can actually come alongside fellow strugglers in the way and say, come struggle with me. If we're not free to admit that we actually struggle with sin, not just in the past, but today. But today I struggle with sin. And I need the grace and rescue of Jesus today. So would you pray with me? So, Father, thank you for your grace. Expressed in Jesus gathering around a meal with all kinds of sinners. And we ask, Father, that we would be a unified and diverse community. Intergenerational, where we make friends, Lord, with people whose generation or marital status or wealth or race or background is different than ours. And that we are a community, Lord, where it's okay to be a sinner. To admit that we actually still sin. And where we help each other follow you more closely. Send your spirit to make us into that kind of a church, Father. We ask in the name of Jesus.